0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. I am always a couple weeks ahead, but this is my first podcast of 2024. So happy new year. Now this week we are going to talk about loneliness and why we can still feel lonely even after we've spent time with people that we love. I'm also going to explain why we can struggle to express upset to those who have hurt us. And instead we can turn that upset in on ourselves. I'm also gonna offer some ideas on how to better deal with goodbyes and endings and times of year when more people tend to reach out for help. Somebody wanted to know when is therapy the most popular? And then I'm also gonna talk about um, the ways that we can love people who are hurtful to us from a distance. So how can we healthily set boundaries? And finally, I'll talk about ECT treatment and its effects and feelings of abandonment in our relationships. So let's get started with our first question. This question says, loneliness Mine isn't the simply be around like-minded people type. It's this deep feeling. Not always dark, but when it gets dark, it's really it really feels awful. Quite dangerous as well. Can you please talk about types of loneliness? Because in trying to talk about my loneliness, I often find myself in an even lonelier spot. Thank you. Now, this got a ton of thumbs ups and there's quite a few add-ons to this, but I want to address this key component of it, the different types of loneliness up front. Now, when we think of loneliness, most of us think, oh, you're just not around anybody. You're not around people who understand you, which is why this person said, you know, simply being around like-minded people, that's not really helping anything. And the truth about loneliness is that it can come from a lot of different places. There can be quote-unquote different types. This could mean that we um, wish that we were spending more time around, I don't know, an animal even. I was reading online about the fact that you could have like no animal loneliness. Like if you lost a pet, now your house is really quiet. We can also feel lonely because we don't have a romantic partner. We can feel lonely because we just don't ever feel like we fit in. We can feel lonely because we've moved to a new situation, like myself, like you moved to a new city, you haven't really met your people yet, you feel like lonely in that way, like I'm new, I don't know anybody, right? I had a, a question from someone else in our community about like friendships and feeling like they didn't really trust their friends, or that their friends maybe aren't people they want to be friends with anymore, and that can create loneliness. And I mentioned all of these different like types or really situations that can cause loneliness to let you know that the best way to figure this out is to figure out where it's coming from for you. There was even an article where someone was talking about feeling lonely because we don't have someone to sit quietly with, meaning just companionship. It's not even about the connection of conversation or feeling understood. It's more about the fact that someone's just there with you. Like, let's say you've always had a roommate and now you don't, or you were married and now you're divorced or in a relationship and now you're not. Whatever the situation, maybe you lived at home and now you live on your own. All of that can be distressing and cause us to feel lonely. And I think when we when we talk about loneliness and something that I'll, I'll try to hold myself accountable to, you hold me accountable as well, is changing the way that we talk about it so that we don't think of loneliness as just we'll spend time with people who know you. That'll make you feel better. Sure, for some of us, it will. But for a lot of us, it can come from different places. And I do think there's this huge piece, even personally, where I would call it like transitional loneliness, where we're going through a change and things are different. And that could mean that we've moved. That could mean that we've changed jobs or schools or whatever. But it can also just mean that we're kind of in this transition, And that can happen for a lot of reasons, right? We'd be going through a breakup or a divorce. We could be changing our friend groups or trying a new career path. Um, We could be doing a lot of different things. And I think in that transition of us figuring out who we are and what we wanna be, who we wanna be with, we can feel really lonely. Now, the fact that it's really dangerous, please reach out to a professional, get some support. Loneliness is a key piece of suicidality because we can feel very hopeless and helpless about it. And I want you to know that once we can figure out kind of the trigger for you, where we think this loneliness is coming from, that's how we've like worked to overcome it or quote unquote fix it, right? We can't fix something we don't understand. So be curious, not judgmental about your loneliness. Consider where you think it comes from. I know it's easy to just think, well, I just miss people and I feel like I never really connected, even if I am connected. <sighs> when is it at its worst? At night? At night? Is it after we see people? Is it because we don't feel like we fit in with those people? Are maybe those not our people? Is it because we enjoyed spending time with them and now that it's quiet, we hate it? That all gives us ideas of how to feel better, right? If we don't like the quiet, maybe we look into getting a roommate. If we um, feel like it's because we don't fit in, maybe we start trying to find new friends and different groups of people who have shared interests, those are just a couple things to get you started. Now, there were a lot of add-ons on this. And the first one says, I definitely relate. I can spend hours with people that I enjoy being around and share lots of common interests and hobbies with, but I still feel so isolated and drained and alone. I lack the sense of fulfillment that everyone else seems to get from social interactions. I'm able to connect with people on a personal and close level, but it feels like no matter what, those people will never fully understand me. This is that part I was talking about before that our loneliness can stem from feeling like I'm different. It feels like I'm being on my own. It feels like being on my own island because I never understand um, others. But because I understand others, but they'll never be able to reciprocate that. Why is it so hard to feel connected in a way that would make this impossible itch to scratch go away? Is everyone capable of this level of social or emotional connection, or will there always be this feeling of loneliness? I know this is a tough truth to hear, but I think we need to find different friends, or. So we need to find different groups of friends if we don't feel like they get us, can meet us where we're at, we can connect emotionally. Or we need to get better at sharing about ourselves because I find it usually comes from one of those places. And most likely it's the second. So many of my clients, members of our community over the years have talked about the fact that they don't feel like their friends really know them because they don't really share anything about them. And it's hard for them to recognize that up front. It starts off by, saying, you know, them feeling like nobody really gets me, that kind of thing. But then it quickly moves into this realization that, oh my God, I don't think they get me because I don't tell them about me. And that can come from a lot of different places, right? We can struggle to speak up for ourselves and talk about our own interests, issues, things like that because we were raised in a household where children weren't supposed to be heard from, or maybe we got abused or shamed if we spoke up, or maybe, you know, we grew up in a home with addiction. And so the whole focus of our energy was always on that person and making sure they were happy. Maybe we were an extreme people pleaser and we fawn a lot, right? None of that includes us sharing pieces of ourselves. And it takes work and it takes understanding of self to be able to express it to other people. We have to feel okay doing it, and that there might be a lot of triggers in that road to sharing about ourselves. So just consider it. My That's my suspicion, is that that's why you feel like you get everybody else, but they don't understand you. And that's why you still feel lonely. Now, there was another add on it said, yes, I find loneliness often triggers suicidal ideation for me. When experiencing it, I am thoroughly convinced I have no friends or no one to turn to, no one who would care if I wasn't there. These thoughts aren't true. I do have people in my support system. How can I challenge these difficult thoughts when experiencing loneliness? Now, this is why loneliness can be dangerous, right? It can make us feel hopeless and helpless, like we have nowhere to turn, there's nothing that we can do. And I'm curious about where this comes from for you. I don't know if these thoughts are directly correlated with depression, because I haven't even talked about that piece, but when we struggle with major depressive disorder, depression can take away any excitement, any positivity, anything that's good, anything that we're looking forward to. It's like a dark cloud that swoops in and snuffs out all the light. And so your loneliness could be tied to that. And that's why it's hard for you to think that you have any friends. There's no one to turn to. We go, like all or nothing black and white, right? We dive right deep into the hopeless, helpless depression state. And so consider if it's coming from there. And if you're not seeing a professional, I would encourage, you know, encourage you to reach out to a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist in your area. Let's get you some support for that. But consider the other options, the other things that I mentioned. Do we not feel really understood? Do we, um, is it loneliness? Like the other ones I mentioned, like not having an animal around, not having someone just be in our space, like having a roommate or something like that. Like, where does it come from for you? Do we think it's depression related? Cause that's my gut. When I read this question, I was like, this sounds like depression. So that's where I think it's coming from, but you know, you best. So consider the other options that we talked about and see if one of those fits. Okay. Because we can challenge those difficult thoughts, bit with bridge statements and stuff like that. But I think we really have to get more to the root of it. We have to figure out like, is it depression? Does that mean medication is our best thing to go to? Does it mean that maybe we don't feel understood and we need to speak up more about who we are? Um, is it coming out of trauma responses? Do we need to work on healing that? Um, in the meantime, we can do bridge statements and check our facts. I love that you said, you know, these thoughts aren't true. So we can do some fact-checking. I even do that to myself when I'm like worried that someone's mad at me because like recovering people pleaser. So I always think people are mad at me when I have no evidence to support that. And so instead of reaching out or speaking up about it, I pause and I check my facts. And so I'll look through text messages or um, replay conversations to check my facts to prove that they're not mad at me. I haven't done anything. You know, I'll run through the day. And I will admit it doesn't help 100%, but it does make me feel better. And then I have to challenge those thoughts. And those that's bridge statement land. So then instead of letting yourself say, I have nobody, no one to turn to, no one will be there if I needed, I want you to challenge that with, you know, a bridge statement of something like, you know, it is possible that if I needed my friends to show up for me, that maybe one of them would. It's possible I'm not as lonely as I think I am right? And those might be too far ahead. I don't know how far on the bridge you can get, but remember bridge statements are not supposed to be positive. They're supposed to just be less negative than the thought prior to them. Okay. And we have to kind of like build our way out, but be be patient with yourself. It does get better and we can overcome this loneliness experience. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Katie, when I get upset with someone else, I tend to feel the urge to punish myself for being upset rather than holding them accountable why is this happening? It's totally destroying my mental health and relationships. I love this question. This is so incredibly common. And the reason that we usually punish ourselves rather than punishing the person who actually did something is because that's how we were raised. And I know that answer sucks, but hang with me. So when we're growing up, let's say in our first 10 years of life, we could probably even go back farther that like, You know, when we're younger, we start to see these patterns where if we cry, if we express an upset, if we get angry, I'm mad at you, right? Kids get angry at their parents all the time, especially when they're like toddlers. That's our first, uh, I guess, attempt at being independent. We try to push back when we're like two or three. That's why they call them three-nagers and terrible twos, is because we realize for the first time that we're an independent individual. We get to kind of choose things. Even though our our choices are pretty limited, we don't know that. This is all brand new. And we realize that we're separate from our parent. Well, by golly, then I can push back and I can tell them, I don't want that. I want to dress myself. We, We argue. We fight. We can say mean things. That's all because... It's healthy development. We're trying to learn our boundaries and learn where we can be and what's okay and what's not okay and and who we are as an individual. We're slowly learning now. In a healthy household, our parents set healthy boundaries with us. Or like, you can't talk to me that way. I understand you're upset. What are you upset about? You know, teaching us to use feelings words, teaching us to talk about how we, what we're experiencing, what's going on inside. You know, like one of my best friends, Abba, is so good with this with her kids. She'll sit her boys down. She's like, so you seem really upset. Are you angry? Are you essential like feelings, Willett? Which? What are you feeling? Where do you think it's coming from? Are you mad that we couldn't go outside? I know it's raining, right? Trying to help them figure out why they are so dysregulated. But most of us did not grow up with that. My friend Al was also a therapist, so you know she's a little ahead of the curve. But most of us didn't grow up with that in our household. And so instead of us feeling like we can express that and we can say when we're upset and it's acceptable that it's going to be received... Instead of us experiencing that, we experience shame. We experience guilt, embarrassment. We think something's incredibly wrong with us and it's not okay or safe for us to express that. That could be because we were harmed if we spoke up about an upset or we were emotionally abused, harmed in a different way, but just as harmful, um, you know, by like words and telling us how terrible we are and things like that. It could have also caused our parents to withdraw more. I know some of us had parents with a mental illness that was untreated. I know for many of you, if you had a parent who struggled really badly with like depression, anxiety, or some other mental illness, sometimes when we had upsets, it was too much for them. And they would just like, you know, kind of push us away, almost neglect us even further. And so all that to say, and there's tons of different reasons, hopefully some of that kind of rang true for you. But When we aren't used to conflict, we don't know how to have it. We don't know how to hold someone accountable and speak up for ourselves for whatever reason. Doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel okay. We do what we can with it and that's turn it inwards. That's the same reason that we will tend to uh, abuse drugs or alcohol, uh, have an eating disorder, self-injury. We have this pain or this upset and we don't know what to do with it. And so we turn it in on ourselves. Because if we don't have another outlet, another safe space to put things, to deal with things, it's always going to come back to us. It's the reason that children, when I'm always asked by parents and people in our community, how do I talk to my kids? How do I tell them about you know my postpartum depression or the fact that I have anxiety? How do I tell them without overwhelming them or without sharing too much? And my answer is always the same. It's always, Share with them as much as you think they can understand. Give them all the information. Obviously, there's some things children don't need to know, but we need them to know it's not their fault because children always internalize things as being their fault because that's the only thing that can make sense to them. They don't understand the world in the way that us as adults do. And if they don't have all the information, they can't make sense of it. And so they take what they know and they apply it to what they already know. And what that means is that if mom is sad and not around and is really neglectful of me, I must have done something wrong and I'm the reason that I don't deserve it. I must have upset mom, right? Because if I don't understand why she's upset, I, I must be me. I looked at my brother, he's not upset like I am. I must have done something, right? And I know that sounds really simplistic, but it's very true. So just think of that for your own self in your own life. Are there things that were never explained to you, things that you took ownership over that we're not yours to take. That could be feeding into this as as well. But the big, like key theme of this is that we don't speak up, hold people accountable because conflict seems scary and overwhelming. We never had a good experience with it growing up, and it's too risky or dangerous for us to engage in. And so we turn it on ourselves. Now there was a comment that I also have the same problem. Whenever I get angry with someone else, I immediately think that I'm the one that's in the wrong. This then results in me not being able to confront anyone about anything, even when harm is being done, because I'm terrified of actually being proved wrong and having the whole world see me as just overreacting or being too sensitive. I guess my question is, how can I work through this and be able to confront people when I really need to? There are key terms in here that you feel like you'll be seen as overreacting or too sensitive that is an old narrative from your past and I'd be curious about where that comes from my guess is your parents to some extent someone in your life growing up told you you were too sensitive and you're just overreacting oh you know she's always so this way or that way or he's always acting like it's a big deal mom 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 the cry baby a lot of families talked to their children like that I mean I grew up with families that did that luckily mine did not do that to me, but I always did feel like I was too sensitive and it probably came from somewhere else. So be curious about your experience. Be curious about where this concern for for you being seen as too sensitive or overreacting comes from. Have we heard that story before? We have to do our own research because again, I think it comes from your past. I think it's, it never felt safe for you to express an upset because it was too risky. To me, this just reeks of risk, right? I didn't want to be proven wrong. What if I'm, what if I'm not the one that's being wronged? I'm the one doing the wrongdoing, right? In every, the reason you can't confront anyone about anything is because there's always two sides to every story. Even if one person is more in the wrong than the other, there's always two perspectives. If I confront Sean about something and say, hey, you said this and it hurt my feelings. He'd be like, I'm so sorry, that wasn't my intention. I was reacting because you did this. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, there's always two sides. There's always two pieces, but you should feel free to speak up about it so we can get all the information. And so the way to overcome this or the way to work through this is to work to identify where it's coming from. Where in our past have we heard that we're too sensitive or that we're overreacting? Let's be curious about that and dig into it because in there is your answer in like undoing this pattern of behavior. Okay? Another add-on says, on a similar note, why is it almost impossible for me to be confrontational no matter how many times I could literally write a script and rehearse it and let someone know that something that they did hurt me? As soon as I'm actually in the situation, I freeze. It's like all the anger and frustration towards them is just gone. And then after the encounter, I'm not angry with the person, but I'm angry at myself. I immediately become uh, smiles and forgiving as if none of it ever mattered. Is there a better way to approach this aside from rehearsing and writing a script? Yes, the freeze is happening. So my best advice is to, again to figure out where this is coming from. All of these questions just tell us that this isn't the only time it's happened. This isn't the last time it's going to happen unless we figure out its root. So were you ever able to be confrontational growing up? Was Conflict, like in my family, conflict like never happened. So it felt very out of control if I was around someone where it did. It makes me very conflict averse. But I have to understand where that's coming from. And then here's another tip, and something that I think might help you is when we have practiced, I love that you're doing that. I love that you're writing a script, practicing it, beautiful but we need to play it out. I want you to play out worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario in as much detail as possible, because I have a feeling that it's in the moment when you say it out loud to somebody else, there's something that happens that causes you to freeze. You get overwhelmed. So I want you to play, I want you to role play it out in your head. Imagine all the details, walking up to them, starting the conversation, you know, what would it be like? What would they say? How would we respond? And I know you're like, but I am rehearsing it. Let's do best case worst case, most likely case. Okay. And then the last little tip, because you freeze and you like forget everything. I want you to have some kind of grounding technique to bring you back out of that freeze. Cause freeze is essentially our, our nervous system getting overwhelmed, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. You're going into freeze. Um, I don't know if right before we could do a full body shake, if we could have a fidget toy in our pocket while we talk to them. I don't know what will keep you out, but let's, I have, um, a whole video about grounding techniques i also have a video about uh coping skills you can look those up on youtube coping skills katie morton just pop it in the you know the little search tab uh, but maybe those can help bring you out of that because freeze can be so ugh, it, it's the worst it's so such a helpless feeling and i'm so sorry but we have to find a way to break you out of it and playing it out and doing that i think can get you there okay Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. I'm looking for some tips on how to better cope with goodbyes and endings. It's almost unreal how upset I get, even when something doesn't really mean that much to me. A coworker that I'm not even close to can retire or a neighbor I rarely talk to can move and it devastates me. Or a restaurant can close or a TV show can end and I feel sad and anxious at the thought of something being over. Sometimes I even have a hard time saying goodbye to coworkers on Fridays, knowing that I won't see them for a few days over the weekend. It's pretty embarrassing, LOL. I feel like this obviously has to do with attachment. It's like you read my mind. But I don't have any trauma or abandonment in my childhood that would explain why I have so much trouble letting go of people. Oh, letting go of people, experiences, and things. Any tips? I love your podcast so much, and I also wanted to say that I really enjoy how the episodes have been a bit shorter lately. I've noticed that they're about 30 to 45 minutes, and that's perfect. Yay! A lot more digestible and less overwhelming if I miss one and want to catch up on a few. Thanks again. That's great. I did shorten them on purpose to make them more digestible because I'd heard that it's hard to get through them when they're extra long. So thanks for the feedback. Okay. Now, great question. We're going to have to do a little research. And I know I say this all the time, but we have all the answers as to why we're reacting in the way that we are. We just have to dig into it. You said you don't have any trauma or abandonment in childhood. That's wonderful. That doesn't mean that we won't struggle with attachment. Now, I have an attachment workshop available on my website. Go to katymorton.com. I have a workshop over there if you want to learn all about attachment. But trauma and abandonment in childhood aren't the only reasons that we can struggle with attachment. Attachment has a lot to do with us feeling like our parents are consistent and we can count on them. Now, I know adult you might think, but I had it fine. My parents were good. Like they were there and you know, It wasn't too bad. Here's a couple examples of things that are incredibly common that could lead to something like this. A parent not picking you up on time from school or from a sporting game or some event. You're the last one there with a teacher. Or everybody's gone and you're waiting in a parking lot. That's really scary for kids. Did you have a lot of death growing up? Maybe lost a bunch of grandparents or aunts and uncles. Did you move around a lot? Now, I know we like to think of trauma as this like a big T thing. I must have been abused. Something had to happen. There's a lot of ways that we can be terrified. We can be overwhelmed. We can be dysregulated for a long period of time. Did your parents get divorced? Was it messy? You know, there's a lot of different reasons that we can struggle with this type of attachment. And it clearly has something to do with that, or maybe fear of abandonment, which could be kind of a symptom of BPD. I'm not saying you have borderline personality disorder or BPD, I'm just saying it's a symptom of it and a lot of us can struggle with it. And that could come from anxiety, distrust in the fact that people can show up consistently, right? It can be because we get so dysregulated, we feel everything so intensely. We There's a lot of different reasons this can happen. So do some research. Maybe one of the things I mentioned, you know, you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Let's dig in. Let's figure out where that's coming from. Sure, we didn't have abandonment as a child or any major trauma that we can think of, but maybe some of those other things I mentioned, you know, rang true for you. Parents not showing up for us, maybe being late a lot, saying they're going to come and be it. Like my dad, because he worked away from home a lot, would be like, oh, I'll be your game. And then sometimes he'd be called to work and he couldn't. And that sucked. Does that mean I'm like horrifically traumatized and I can't function? No, but does that mean that I could have a little bit of a fear of abandonment or attachment issues? 100%. So consider it. Do some deep diving. It'll tell you where to work in therapy and what to what to focus on. But like I said, on my website, I have an attachment-based workshop. I have tons of videos for free on YouTube about attachment. I have an inner child workshop that I think could benefit all of us, but do some journaling. Let's figure out where this is coming from. There's something in here about things being over that's very triggering, and I'm curious why and where it came from. Don't be judgmental, we're trying to learn. Um, again, I don't know if you had to move a lot. I don't know if you had a friend leave, like one of my good friends, um, moved in middle school and it was devastating for me for a while. Let's think about all these little events. It doesn't have to be a big one, but a bunch of little ones can lead to us always being concerned about people not being around, feeling abandoned, feeling left out, feeling insecure in our relationships. So let's consider where that could come from and, and keep me posted. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. It says, hey, Katie, I was wondering as a therapist, if there are certain times of year that you tend to get more patients. I imagine with health insurance deductibles reset uh, resetting January 1st, that many people would either start therapy or stop therapy around New Year's. I also wonder if seasonal depression plays a role in this. Just curious. Thanks. thought this was an interesting question. And the truth is, you are correct. Um, winter. <laughs> winter is the most popular, although I will also tell you that um even though I'm not in private practice anymore, my friends who are had this wave of increased people seeking therapy in the last year or two, and it's because of COVID. I mean, I could say that it's a bunch of different things, but it all tracks back to COVID. And the fact that we were away from people, that we were isolated, that we all work from home, like that disconnection is very dysregulating. And so that caused this huge wave, but winter for sure. Now deductibles resettling, yes, <clears throat> or resetting. That I don't find people stopping, really. I haven't seen that in my own practice. I, I mean, I'd love to hear from other people in the comments, but I do find an increase around probably October, maybe September, but definitely not summer. Summer is when people are not in therapy. They cancel a lot of appointments. I'll have patients say, you know, I'll catch you back in a few months. Obviously, those of us who need more consistent care, you, you don't ebb and flow like that. But for a lot of like higher functioning patients who are, you know, managing most of the time, they won't come in then. Also my kids in in college and stuff like that, they are like, bye, see ya. Um, But definitely the fall. And even in the new year, I actually find an increase in January slash February because people want to like improve their life, right? New year's resolutions. I want to get better. I don't like that I'm still doing this. Um, that can be an increase as well. So it's really all of fall and winter. So you are right. Okay, moving on to question five says, hello, can you talk about loving at a distance when one has to get away from their toxic home or parents, but still loves them? And is it possible to set boundaries and have one's own life without them in a healthy way? Okay, couldn't love this question more. Yes, but let's be real about this. Cutting off contact, going no contact with a family member or a parent is difficult. If anybody tells you it's easy and they say it's the best thing I ever did, they're not telling you the full story. Yes, it can be the best thing we ever did. And yes, I think it's often the healthiest thing for us. When a parent is erratic, inconsistent, abusive in language or in behavior, it's not safe for us. And it is best to not see them at the very least, rarely see them, if not go no contact. But that doesn't mean it's not painful. So with all that being said, the way to love someone at a distance is to do your own work. And this is where it's really, really hard, especially when we grew up in an abusive household. We probably grew up our whole lives thinking that our parents' emotional dysregulation was our responsibility. We probably walked on eggshells. We weren't sure which kind of parent we were going to get. We didn't know if they'd be drunk or high or abusive or not or angry or happy or whatever, right? And so when we go to change the dynamic of the relationship, to place boundaries, to potentially go no compact, we can feel a lot of guilt. And while as a therapist on the outside, I can tell you with 100% certainty that that is misplaced guilt. It doesn't feel like that to you because you've always taken the blame. That's the dynamic. That's what we're used to. And so in order for us to healthily go no contact or put boundaries and limit our, you know, communication or time spent with an abusive parent or family member, we have to untangle that. And what I mean by that is in therapy, we have to figure out, kind of do what I would call, honestly, I, I've done this with a couple of patients and it's been really helpful. It might not work for you, but just as an idea, go through this practice of situations and experiences where you felt guilty, shame-filled, or like responsible for them in some way. Let's think about that. Let's do like a trauma timeline for that. I want you to jot those down. And then in therapy with your therapist, I will, I would help my patients like argue okay so so you're telling me that your your mom got mad that you ate dinner without her when she didn't come home from work for like four hours more than she okay okay so you're to blame what you know we have to second guess that okay so you got reprimanded and you know were abused because you showered first Hmm, right? we sometimes we'd forget how ridiculous these scenarios were and we always assume that a parent is right because that's how we were raised, right? And that our responsibility is to keep the family happy. We could have been the golden child. it's our job to keep everybody happy um, We have to look back on those and we have to check our facts because that guilt isn't isn't really guilt. Now hang with me, this is kind of my second piece to this is that sometimes when we feel guilt for an experience that isn't our fault right? We think of guilt like in a court of law, right? We, we, we have evidence to prove that you were guilty of a crime. When it comes to emotional experiences like this and the guilt that we can experience from an abusive parent, it often has no, no evidence, no facts to support it. But that doesn't negate the feeling. But the feeling usually isn't guilt. And it doesn't, it takes us a little bit of work and consideration until we can figure out what it is. Because we know guilt. We can talk about guilt all the time. I feel so guilty. I'm to blame. What is it that we really feel? Do we feel responsible? Do we feel shame? Do we feel angry? Maybe we feel irritated. I don't know. Go on the feelings wheel. Go to feelingswheel.com. Pull it up. It's a great website. Um, consider if it's not guilt, okay? Because that, I find that to be the biggest hurdle for my patients who are trying to go no contact or limited contact. Now, all that being said, okay, that's kind of the background of it, the issues and kind of hurdles that I feel you have to jump through in order to, or jump over in order to get to a healthy place. Now, how do we set boundaries and live our own life without them in a healthy way? It's a a lot of our own personal work. We can try to communicate these boundaries if it's safe or not, but then it's in the upholding of them that we can grow and thrive and move forward. Doesn't mean that there won't still be these pains of like, oh, I wish my mom or dad could be better. Or I wish my brother wasn't, you know, so abusive or an addict, right? We can still not be happy that this is happening. I don't think anybody's ever happy to have to go no no contact, but that doesn't, just because they're family and just because there's love there does not mean that we have to sustain the abuse year after year, time after time, text after text, call after call, right? We don't have to allow that. And I know that's really hard. So take your time with it, but consider what you're okay with and what you're not okay with and know that it's a process. We lay those boundaries. We might tippy toe back and forth trying to figure out where they should really be. That's okay. Give yourself some compassion as you figure it out. But overall, know that it can be done. It takes some time and we can still love our family and know that we can't be a part of it. And I know it's hard to consider those two things happening at the same time, but it's very true. Nobody should have to stay in a relationship that's abusive. I don't care if we're related or not. But take your time with it and know that it does get better, okay? But untangling that kind of guilt and stuff from the past is really going to be the, the toughest hurdle. You got this. Okay, let's move on to question number six. It says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I apologize for repeating this question every week. That's okay. We try to get through as many as we can. I know lots of you are asking them multiple times. Keep at it. I'm not upset about it at all. I, I welcome it. it. says, I've been suffering from depression for quite some time and have tried many different kinds of treatments. I started doing ECT, which stands for, if you don't know, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, people often think of this in a very like barbaric type of old fashioned way like they put, you know, I don't know, like popsicle sticks in your mouth and like shock you. Yes, they shock you. It's very, very different now. It is not done in that kind of a way. So just throwing that out there. Okay. So I started doing ECT about two years ago and I'm currently on maintenance. Wonderful. I am embarrassed to admit it, but if I'm honest with myself, I kept going for a while, largely for the anesthesia. I might also have developed an attachment to the care that I get as I am being prepped for treatment. Interesting. I will say that the last few sessions seem to have been more effective and I feel better for a longer period of time. However, was I ridiculous to have gone for a longer period of time, almost solely for a brief moment of anesthetic relief and the health uh, health team's care? Is something wrong with me? Maybe I was getting the help I needed, but I only look forward to these moments because they were the most co- the more concrete at the time. Thank you for your time and consideration. I really appreciate all that you do. Of course, of course. Um, you're not alone wanting care and people prepping us i mean for a good example of this would be i had a patient years ago who self-injured and that was part of she loved taking care of her wounds and she loved when she'd have to go to the hospital and get stitches and for her wounds and that care was because she did not receive that growing up her parents were not consistent they weren't around they were very neglectful they had one child with super high needs and another that was an addict, things were very erratic. And she was kind of left, she was the youngest, she was kind of left doing her own thing. And that neglect meant that we wanted treatment and care. We wanted support and love very basic human needs and i'm curious if that's where this is coming from for you somewhere like that where like a parent wasn't consistent they weren't around as much as we wish we didn't get the support and our parents could have been good on paper remember emotional neglect is a real thing they can be like oh i went to a good school i had a roof over my head i had clothes on my back they fed me but they weren't really there for me emotionally you know it was like when we're home do your homework you know shut up i don't have time for this if you're crying like go to your room that's imp- those things are impactful they harm us. So I'm curious if there's anything in there for you that would make sense. And then the anesthesia, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, there's a reason that we have opioid crises happening all over the world right now. Wanting to numb out when we feel uncomfortable is normal doesn't mean it's healthy but it's very common. We numb out through overeating, undereating, through shopping, overspending. We numb out through sex, through gambling, through obviously drugs and alcohol, which I would throw this in the the drug kind of space. We do everything we can to not feel. We want to numb out cuz feeling their feelings is uncomfortable. I was talking to my neighbor about this the other day and she's like she's been really working on trying to feel her feelings. and she's like, God, if they just weren't so fucking uncomfortable. And that's the truth, right? Feelings feel terrible sometimes, but the best way is to go through them, to experience them, to allow ourselves to, you know, yeah, that was hard. I'm going to cry about that a little bit. Oh, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good, but it is what my body needs. I'm experiencing this emotion for a reason. Emotions are incredibly helpful. It tells us a lot about our experience in our environment, what's going on in our world internally and externally. So your want and urge to numb out through the anesthetic relief is, I'm not surprised. My encouragement for you, and I know this is gonna be hard, but is to speak up with your team and talk to them about this. You obviously got benefit from ECT. Make that very clear. It was incredibly helpful for you. I've had to be helpful for a lot of my patients. So I'm glad that it's worked for you as well, especially with deep depression. I've had patients whose depression would just never lift, no matter what we did, no matter how many medications or treatments or uh, going into a facility. It never got better. So I'm so glad that it was helpful for you as well. But let them know that this was happening. I think it's a piece of your depression. It's probably also a piece of like why we've been depressed in the first place, like emotional neglect or abuse growing up, something like that. But it's an important key part of of us, and what we need to work through. So let them know. You're not weird. Nothing's wrong with you. It's very, very normal to want care, to need attention, and to want to numb out. Okay? Final question. Question number seven says, okay, I think my question is a doozy, Katie, but perhaps it's already been covered to death. I don't know. But I really struggle a lot with feeling a sense of abandonment when I'm impatiently waiting for a response to a text from a friend or When I don't hear from them for a while, I automatically think the worst has happened. For context, I've recently been diagnosed with ADHD, along with anxiety and depression, and I strongly suspect complex PTSD as well. Sometimes distractions or radical acceptance works. I've done some CBT already, but not always. Any suggestions, Katie? Yes, so many. Um, I wonder about complex PTSD as well. Although my, um, my friends and my patients with ADHD do have a real they're really sensitive to rejection they call it rejection sensitive what is it uh rejection sensitivity dysphoria i like like i have a video about it I think it's RSD, um, is the acronym. So anyway, we can be super, super sensitive to this, to feeling like people aren't getting back to us and to thinking the worst. And even I was talking about being a people pleaser and thinking if someone doesn't get back to me, oh my God, I must've done something wrong. Right. We can fall into that so quickly. And that might be what's happening here for you. Um, we have to understand it if we're going to cope with it. So I encourage you to do some of that research. Do we think it's coming from attachment stuff growing up? Because complex PTSD makes me wonder. Do we? Do we have parents that weren't consistent? Were we the golden child and we are supposed to keep everybody happy? So we people please a lot. Um, do you think it's our ADHD? Are we so sensitive to rejection that even the like waiting for someone to text back just feels so painful? Um, I'm just curious. We have to be curious, right? And Distraction and radical acceptance can work a little bit, but the feelings can come back again, right? And we want to make sure that we're finding a better way to manage them so that they don't come back as much. And the other tips, and I know I talk about these a lot, but they're really helpful, um, are the checking of the facts. What facts do we have? Like when a friend doesn't text you back, we don't have any facts. Consider the, like, and maybe, I don't know, it depends on how much of a people pleaser kind of fawner you are, if you are at all. But consider the last time someone texted you and you didn't have the time to reply. Like a good example for me would be like when I'm in between meetings and I'm like back to back for one day, I might not get back to somebody for like five hours. And it's not because I don't love them or I don't care about them or anything like that, but I'm just not available. Or if someone asked me a tough question, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to follow up with them. I have to ask somebody else. Then I don't have the answer until I hear back from somebody else. So it's like this chain of texts that have to happen. Or I'm traveling. Ooh. Or I'm in another country traveling, right? So there's a lot of reasons why we don't always reply. And unless we have facts to support something else, we don't know. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It always, like, unless the relationship is not in in good standing, and check your facts on that. Again, feelings are not facts. I feel like i got to throw that out there. That should be a t-shirt. Feelings are not facts. Um, And thoughts are not facts either. And if you have a thought or a feeling multiple times, that does not turn it into a fact. Okay? But consider your facts on this. Is the relationship, has it been fine? Were you just talking like a couple days ago and it was all cool? Awesome. Then this lack of communication is is something to do with them. We make everything about ourselves. And I don't mean that as any put down. We all do it. We're so egotistical. We always think it has. It's my problem. I did something. It must be me. They're thinking about me. Something's wrong. We make it all about ourselves. And 99% of the time, it's not. The only time it is about us is if we know, like we got in a fight and something happened. And when we have facts to support that, maybe the relationship is on on, unsturdy ground. But most of the time, it is not that case. And I encourage you to check your facts on that. So when you're waiting for those and your brain wants to go, the distraction is going to be key, but I want you to check your facts, Okay let's do that. Then the next thing I want you to do, and I know this sounds kind of weird, but it's because of what I think it says buildup and the fact that you already have anxiety and ADHD. I want you to either do a full body shake, or I want you to dunk your face in some cold water in your sink. You could splash it, but dunking's a little better because we want to trigger that diving reflex. And we also want to like shake out some of that anxiety. Because I think sometimes when we struggle with ADHD and anxiety, uh, uh, something can happen. I don't want to say a big or a small thing, but like a, a issue in a friendship or relationship can occur. And instead of acknowledging it, being able to check our facts, take our time with it, we jump to conclusions. We immediately fall into this worry well because we already worry all the time. And our anxiety just takes us on this horrible ride. And so we wanna shake out that energy. It can get queued up in our system and it has nowhere to really go. And so it goes to our brain and swirls our thoughts at like a million miles a minute. Nobody likes that. So full body shake or dunk your face and check your facts, and then keep me posted, okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really, really does help. Thank you for asking your questions. Have a wonderful week. Do your homework, and I'll see you next time.